The child welfare system exists to keep children safe. What happens when better safe than sorry becomes more sorry than safe? Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is part four of the More Sorry Than Safe episodes with Melissa Bright. If you haven't listened to the previous parts, please go back and catch up so you're not lost. We want to warn you one more time that there may be things that you hear in this episode that may be upsetting and triggering. Join us as we continue with Melissa right now. We're very thankful for them and their health and I don't know, just to get to do normal life. Thankful that CPS isn't around. Right. So, but it wasn't just easy breezy. I feel like it's a happy ending, but I went through a really, really hard mental season after it. It wasn't just this, Hey, happy ending. It was overall happy, but it wasn't just, you know, snap your fingers, life's back to normal. And when you had something to fight for, it was keeping your mind focused. And then now that they're home, Like the reality of everything that happened and the worries about what could have happened if things had gone differently, that is maybe almost even harder. I mean, that happens a lot when you stop going, 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 going. Often you crash. Yeah, I feel like I became like hyper helicopter mom. I don't know how else to describe it. Kat, you mentioned that you did therapy or were a therapist for a while. And I know you do social work. I was so terrified that if I saw a therapist or if I got on anxiety medication, that it could be used against me, that I buried it for so long until I started suffering from anxiety attacks. Even though I didn't harm my kids, when you're in not a good mental place, you're like, hey, the state of Texas says I'm an inadequate mom. I must be an inadequate mom, you know. Mom guilt, but like on steroids. Everybody already (laughs) suffers those things just being a normal mom in today's society. And then you add on a whole extra list. Texas is a big state. You know, when a big state tells you, hey, you're not momming correctly. Mason was about a year old. So this was May after everything had happened. And I had to bring him back to the emergency room. And I was petrified to go to the emergency room alone. So I made my mother-in-law go with me. We both had experiences where we felt like we could not trust a situation and it's been scary and we've relied on each other. I think we've kind of had some like different kinds of trauma because we have worked in and with child welfare for so long. I can't even count how many times Jack has just been with me at at the ER. Even like, you know, my own daughter has done that pass out thing you were telling, you were talking about where she's screaming, screaming, and then nothing. And then screaming, screaming again, you know, and I've been with her. I mean, the memories just like, blend together because we have so many kids between the two of us and so many years like because you just need somebody 
You do. And the thing is, is, you know, we're not created to carry the burden of that alone. Motherhood in general alone. Like, that's why you need your sisterhood. They say it takes a village and people are like, oh, they don't show up. I'm like, no. And you need something, they show up. Speaking of which, can you tell us what your support system was during this time? Wow. Um, okay. So I have an angel of a best friend. She was there for everything. She's the one who showed up when we were in the emergency room that first night. She was pregnant with her fourth child and she sat for three days in our sanctions hearing and then another three or four days in our show cause hearing on a wooden pew seat at however many months pregnant to support me. Her sisters, they all stepped up to watch all of her kids so she could be there and support me with my kids. I owe her everything and then some. I had Anne-Marie who went through hell and back with her own situation through her own healing of her own trauma, was able to sit there and help and encourage me through my own, you know, friends that cry with me and friends that celebrate with me. My mom and my sister were there. I'm from a smaller family, but my husband's from a huge family. And the day we went to court, I mean, aunts, cousins, co-workers, you know, my, my co-workers from working that I didn't even work anymore. And my co-workers showed up for me. You know what I'm saying? Like if you pour into your people, when you need it, your people will show up. There are people that I can't even remember showing up the day that we got our kids back. We came home and we hadn't been home in so long at this point. The next morning, Dylan went to work as life was per usual. I had two banana baby food pouches and raisins. We had no food. We had nothing. And my sister-in-law's book club gifted us $300 for HEB. And we just got to go fill our fridge. And I'm just telling you, people come out of the woodworks when you go through it. And I think a lot of people are afraid to ask for help. They feel like they're going to be a burden. My mother-in-law used to tell me, she's like, you're inhibiting them from doing the work of the Lord because you're fearful that you're a burden. If you weren't vulnerable with Jack, then you would have inhibited her from doing the Lord's work to be able to be present for you, to serve you, to love you, to give the honor of being a friend, you know, because you're fearful that you're a burden and you don't want to ask for help and this, that, and the other. You're inhibiting somebody else from being able to serve you. When you have nothing left and you are on empty, you don't have the luxury of feeling like a burden. You're like, whatever help I can receive. And I was very fortunate that somebody stepped up. So where did you find the strength to keep fighting? I don't even understand that as a question. Like, how do you, how do you not? So if you did listen to the Wandery podcast, you heard a second story in addition to art. I have had multiple conversations with this woman and she is incredible. Her story and her experience through something very, very similar to my own humbled me so much because I didn't realize how good I had it. You just heard all of my story and that was good. That was best case scenario. Anyway, you hear her story and I'm like, how did you, how did you fight for so long? I only had to keep my fight up for a few months. How did you fight for so long? And she's incredible. How do you feel like this affected the kids long-term? We are so fortunate. It seems silly to say that, but again, after the fact, and you look back, so, so, so fortunate that it gets to be a burden that Dylan and I carry. Our kids were young. They were sheltered by their age. I don't think they remember any of it. I remember listening to a part of that Wondery podcast. I listened to it exactly one time. I couldn't, I could barely make it through and I lived it and I could barely make it through the podcast because 
it was a lot, but that doesn't mean don't listen to it. <laughs> like I'm being a naysayer. Listen to it. You need to. Charlotte had walked in one day and she said, um, like what had happened? Or she'll mention things about Mason Shunt. And, you know, like we're now starting to have to tell her about these events. But how how do we share that with her? And I, I almost fear like telling her about something that had happened in her life might end up harming her more than just sheltering it from her. Like she was naturally sheltered from it from being her age, you know? So I don't know how to navigate that now. We're very thankful that it gets to be a burden that Dylan and I carry and not them. Speaking of which, I shared with you a little bit about when I received a false abuse report and how I'm still very easily triggered by things that remind me of that. So how has it affected Dylan and you long-term? Like when people knock at the door, is that something that triggers you? My husband gets triggered when anybody knocks on the door, but that was pre-CPS. So I don't, I don't feel like that has had a burden on that. I am hyper aware of other people's perceptions. Does that make sense? And I think that normally in motherhood you are, but I almost feel like if I get a, you know, bad vibe or what I presume to be a bad look that I have to go and over explain why I did something or why something looks a certain way or why this or why that. So for me, it's internal. It boils down to feeling from time to time inadequate to be a mom. And just because you have a bad day as a mom does not make you an inadequate mom. Gotta learn grace for myself, for my husband, he doesn't realize it, but he became like helicopter dad. I thought I was hyper helicopter mom. No, no. Helicopter dad. I'm talking about like, my husband is 6'4". Okay. So he is not a small human, but he was like on top of the kids at the playground, like doesn't want them to fall, like didn't even give them space to learn their own limitations and things like that, especially when they were younger and especially Mason. I realized that I am hypersensitive to Mason and not as much to Charlotte. And that probably has to do with his shunt and the medical stuff that went on. But like anytime he has a fever, I would like watch him like a hawk. Charlotte had a fever, you know, depending on the fever or the reason or the cause, you might give her some medicine, lay her down for a nap, put on her favorite show, you know, that kind of thing. But Mason, it was to be like, compulsively taking his temperature and jotting down symptoms in case I had to take him to the doctor. And I would video things in case I had to show the doctor what had happened, when it happened, why it happened, all of this other thing. I remember one time Mason had just recently learned to walk and we had this coffee table that we turned into like where the kids played like, and it didn't have sharp corners, it had rounded corners, but Mason tripped and he fell and hit the corner of that thing. And he got a little, little tiny knot, little, little, Little tiny knot. I mean, I immediately got my mother-in-law on FaceTime. I'm facing timing her while it happened because what if I have to bring her to the hospital? Everything became how it would be received by somebody else. I completely understand that. I feel like I have a permanent panic disorder just from parenting. Yeah, but then when you parent and you exist in the child welfare world and you see the things that happen, it's just, it's a scary, scary place to be. So we have been going over and over your story and have identified some primary abuses of power, which has kind of led the story to how it did. The first thing that we wanted to point out, which we identified as a major abuse of power in this situation, the better safe than sorry approach, where they remove the kids based on a doctor's concern rather than doing any actual investigating. A doctor can say, we don't have an understanding of what happened in this situation. You need to investigate it. But there was no more investigating by CPS after this point because anything 
that didn't fit their narrative seemed to be dismissed, right? You received the second report from Dr. Mack. She's like a nationally renowned pediatric radiologist. And she looked at the x-rays and said, this could all absolutely have happened from this one accident. You had the documentation saying that there was two different conditions that further explained Mason's injuries. Instead of CPS actually investigating all of these other factors, it is very clear what happened. And I feel like just your testimony alone should have made them go, okay, this makes sense. There was nothing proving that there was any child abuse other than the concern, which wasn't an investigation. It was a concern. So I feel like it's a major abuse of power from the department to remove kids based on the concern rather than actually investigating other circumstances. When you have a report from a doctor, that's one piece of information, but not a whole investigation. And it seems like what they did is they had this piece of information and then they consistently said, we don't need any more information, but that should be the beginning of an investigation. But that's all they wanted. That's all they wanted was this one document. And it kind of sounds like the Sharon Matthews case was the beginning of that, like that case in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I, I didn't know about all of that and all of its detail when our accident happened and our case happened. So like, I didn't know that they were coming off of that into ours. However, we are a different family with a different kid, with a different circumstance, with a different medical facts. Everything is different. And that's exactly why we were so compliant, overly compliant, because we get it. That does happen. And we're in Florida. A child was thrown off a bridge like five or six years ago, and things tightened up a lot after that. And the other case that you mentioned, the judge on the case was very much like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No, no, no. I won't hear this. And it didn't matter what evidence she brought. There was a physician that was like, someone needs to look into this. There's suspected abuse. No one looked into it. The child was found in a drainage ditch. The decomp was so bad that it was difficult to discern what happened and the adoptive father confessed. One of the judges on the case was like, I don't ever want to see again that a physician has asked you to look into something and you don't. And that's reasonable. That's absolutely reasonable. Totally. But a doctor saying we need to look into this is completely different than a doctor saying, please look into this and investigators saying open and shut kids removed no investigation needed you know you remember how i was mentioning how they sent in a report and they literally had to circle yes no do you believe it's abuse i feel like that doctor could say based on this research and this research and the circumstances of this case we could best determine that there's like a 75 to 80 percent likelihood this is abuse and so a cps caseworker can take that and say hey we're pretty sure this is abuse, but let's see if it falls into that other 20, 25% category. Maybe even get the answers that are like likely, not likely, you know, probable, highly probable. Again, like I said earlier, you don't take a blood test and it come back positive for abuse. It is a statistical based diagnosis. Even with statistics, it's never a hundred percent. There's error. Is that um, language even okay? You know, should it maybe say, is this suspicious for abuse? The other thing that really concerned us and was a major red flag for abuses of power was that nobody in your camp and in your home was informed about this emergency hearing. Later, your husband was told on the record that the reason that you weren't informed was that 
there was concern that he would be combative, but that your husband's appointed attorney was told that your husband was informed and that he said that he would not be attending the hearing that day. There's so much deceit there. And all of that deceit just seems like it's there to benefit the state's case. 100%. Now, with great power comes great responsibility. They asked me on multiple occasions, you know, did this caseworker act professionally? When you think of professionalism, you think of customer service. He was never rude or belligerent to our face. Does that mean he was ethical? You know, there's a huge part of professional ethics. Is that taught by the agency? Are we expecting them to maintain a level of personal responsibility? Not just professional responsibility, you know? What is their personal moral code of conduct? How could they advocate for a child if they can't make simple moral decisions, you know? And you cannot lie under oath. You cannot. So this investigator omitting Dr. Mack's report and Mason's further diagnosis of his clouding disorder. We have a lot of concerns about that. It seems like there are some major abuses of power that were at play here that really left you guys with no power and left the department with quite a bit of power. Usually my first assumption when I hear about someone's CPS case and when it's like, oh, you, you got to hear about this case. There's no way they did it. Usually my assumption is they probably did. Let me hear about it. I listened to your podcast, you know, way back in March. And then I think I immediately texted Jack and was like, you got to listen to this. No, really listen to it right now. I think it's kind of what I texted you. And you did because you're the best. I was trying to give the whole thing the benefit of the doubt. Like, let me pretend like I'm the caseworker and I really think you did it. Like, what if I really think there's a chance you did it and you're breastfeeding and your baby has a brain injury? What would I do in that situation? Even if that were the case, you're still human and you are still a person. We don't treat people terribly just because they have a case plan or whatever. But even in that situation, I can't imagine a world where... You don't still at least try to figure out a solution. So I feel like there are two things, I guess, that I can add to that, where you assume that a civil court, which when you are accused of child abuse, you have the civil suit, which is your parental rights. And then you have your criminal suit, which is the crime that you committed. So you actually face it in two different courts. However, when you're talking about the parental rights, which is um, what we went through, it's a civil court. It is done entirely different than how you perceive criminal court would be done. Like I told you earlier, the burden of proof is so much lower. A person of ordinary prudence and caution, you would assume that if you have become a caseworker or a social worker of any kind that you meet that burden, right? If the burden of proof is so low, anybody can say anything at any point. If we can't, one, hold them responsible or assume that they're responsible enough for even that little amount of power, then we need to raise the burden of proof. However, if we raise the burden of proof, would children who are abused or neglected be able to meet it? Would they go back to these environments? And so it really comes down to the person, not necessarily the laws around them. How do you further define that? How do you make that upheld in the department? And honestly, it starts from the top down. In our case, if you can't even so much as state, hey, we did this wrong. Let's fix it. Let's learn from it. 
and change some of our policies and procedures because we care about the children that we advocate for. If you can't even have that level of humility, how do you expect your caseworkers and your supervisors and your program directors to maintain the same? Like, if you're not going to model it, then where would they learn it from? You know, when Mason was upset and crying, that would exacerbate the fluid buildup in his brain. Is that correct? Yeah, it would just put extra pressure on, you know, like anybody, you get a headache when you're screaming, right? If a kid is removed from a situation where he's actually being abused, like a parent can't be like, well, he's upset because he's not with me and it's making his wound worse. So you need to bring him back. But where I felt there was an abuse of power in this situation, I listened to that recording of that family team meeting. You were voicing that, that like, this is making my son worse what solution like what can we do different so that i can help him or someone can help him not be screaming at night because he's being separated from me and what i didn't understand is like the answer was oh you think we're just going to give him back because you know that's what it sounds like you're trying to say in reality let's talk about a solution what could we do different i get the purpose behind you not being allowed at your in-laws overnight probably being along the lines of okay they wanted to make sure she wasn't there when everybody was asleep and you know the baby would be at risk what difference really is the hours of the day specifically to this situation i had gotten a letter from mason's pediatrician stating to breastfeed him i was breastfeeding him that's the best nutrition he could get after having a surgery like that the high highest concern for infection is within the first six months. And so to breastfeed him as long as I could for antibodies and just immune support that I got and I handed that to that letter at the family team meeting. And then I presented a solution. My mother-in-law and father-in-law were there and they said that they would change the code to their security alarm. I said, I would surrender my keys. I would surrender my driver's license, whatever that they required in order to allow me to nurse him through the night. I mean, like we went and we offered viable solutions. We were not trying to hide it from them. We were not trying to trick them. We were trying to state, hey, this is an issue with Mason's healing, recovery, well-being, and we're trying to find a solution for it. She, being the supervisor, said that not being able to breastfeed my son was an inconvenience. She literally said that. She said, that's just an inconvenience Again, abuse of power, like we're not sitting here trying to just nickel and dime the agency and have things our way. And, oh, my gosh, this is such an inconvenience. I don't want to deal with it. No, we're saying, hey, this kid that you're advocating for needs this. How can we make it happen? And they were not budgeting. They weren't trying to find a solution. The impression that I got from hearing the recording was that they have the power. They're not going to do what they don't want to do. And they're not even going to consider how that might work differently. Okay, instead of saying you can't be there between these hours, we'll say you have to have an additional person watching you or we're going to do pop-ins, you know, in the night to make sure everything's okay. Like, just come up with some type of solution or put me on FaceTime when you go into the house. I don't know. There's no podcast that's going to tell you every single minute detail and everything that happened in the circumstances behind it. I would say that a caseworker should be intelligent enough to assess a situation. For example, you know, my father-in-law started as a teacher and football coach, went to assistant principal, and now he's the assistant superintendent of the school district, mandatory reporter. My mother-in-law retired 
after however many years teaching, mandatory reporter. Neither of them have a criminal record. You know, my husband and I, we don't have a criminal record. I'm not saying that that should judge it, but you say you look at all of the facts and then we're sitting here and my mother-in-law is stating to CPS, I'm having a hard time at night. This child is up all night. He needs to be nursed. He needs to be soothed. And I have a 10-year-old to have to care for. But if she's coming to them stating, hey, this is an issue and we're trying to resolve it for the best you know, case scenario for our whole family, you would think that a caseworker and a supervisor could sit down and assess every single fact and determine a risk. Is this a high risk factor? Is this a low risk factor, you know, and determine, hey, maybe we should be a little bit more malleable because of these reasons or, hey, no, this is the third time CPS has been called on this mom. We want to give her the benefit of the doubt. But right now we really need to make sure that child's protected. You know what I'm saying? That's why you investigate. That's why you have these things, you know. They had two stories. We even offered the fact, hey, you know, there's a baby monitor and we'll keep Mason downstairs in the the study, their office, which is on the same level as their master bedroom. And they have a baby monitor so they could hear if he, you know, he was in the room or not, or they could, and they could wake me up or something as long as I was just in the same home, a different room. My in-laws are not rule breakers. They're not even rule benders. Shoot. If it was 10.02, my mother-in-law would say, you were supposed to be out of here by 10. I'm sorry I was using the bathroom. You know what I'm saying? Like you can tell when somebody is actively trying to meet the requirements of the agency while putting their child first, not bend the rules, not skirt the rule. You know what I'm saying? You can tell by how somebody presents something. And it was a united front presenting it. It wasn't like me trying to manipulate CPS. We were all at this table together and we were stating our concerns as a family. We had this family team meeting and I don't really know what it resolves because all it does is CPS finds out more information about us and sticks to their guns. Like there was no... There was no leniency. There was no middle ground. There was no chain, nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like, what was the point of it? Yeah. You know how earlier you were talking about that case that had happened prior to ours in Dallas and how it shaped them? Do you remember the case on uh, Malaya Davis? Malaya Davis and Mason were at Texas Children's Hospital at the exact same time on the exact same floor. No way. Same exact thing. They both had head trauma from falling out of a chair. Two entirely different paths. I don't know what that means or, or how that is. All I all I know is obviously their caseworker and then their supervisor and their program director just chose to do things differently than ours did, right? I don't know what information they received from doctors or not from doctors, but I assume that based on she had like a half craniotomy or something like they had to take off a portion of her skull so that um, way the pressure could release. Okay, Mason, after a week of observation, had one hole drilled. I don't know the intricacies of it, so I don't want to like misspeak or anything like that. But I know on their case, it went to grandma, I think, having custody for a while and then mom receiving custody back after family based services, something with the boyfriend on and on and on until she was found dead. Two very similar starts two very drastic ends. And I'm not saying that they should have experienced the exact same thing we experienced. I don't know what they received, what they didn't receive. I don't know the ins and outs of their case. However, I just know the exact same time, the exact same hospital, the exact same floor, exact same story. Head trauma from falling out of a chair. Why weren't they swayed as much as the story from Dallas as our caseworker and supervisor were? I do think it's notable that very recently, one of the judges had been warning the program director 
but I don't know that it was your local judge that they better not see another physician warning investigators about a case that is ignored. I feel like it's a crutch to just remove, give a thorough investigation. The child advocate attorney, whomever that is, who didn't advocate for my children very well, in my humble opinion, he asked the doctor point blank, do you believe that this baby was shaken? And he said, no. If you look at our report as to why our children were removed, they got that information from the social worker that's part of the child abuse team, not the doctor themselves. And I don't know who she is, but she must be old school because that specifically said termination of parental rights for abuse due to shaking. Our paperwork that they gave us, the notice of removal that they gave us. And when they asked the doctor, was it shaken? They said, no, they said it. They believe it was non-accidental head trauma. So like they didn't even have their ducks in a row. All it took was phone calls. And do you think that Mason would be worth an hour of somebody's time to make some phone calls? Do you think that having all of this information, a few phone calls is worth it before you strip child from their family? Our jaws just hit the floor when we realized how different the standards were for you guys, in this case, the biological parents, compared to the standards that Child Protective Services have for themselves. And it almost seems like the standards aren't even there to protect children or keep children safe. For instance, Mason was removed because Mason had head trauma. You know, he fell off a chair. So when Charlotte was gone, she fell out of a bed that was too big for her. She normally slept in a crib or a toddler bed. Not only was there no phone call, there was no doctor visit, there was no explanation. You had to just pull her out of a car seat and find her. You weren't valued enough for someone to take the time and say, hey, I just want to let you know, Charlotte had an accident. She fell out of a bed. She's fine. We iced it or she's fine. We went to urgent care. They said she's okay. No, it was an afterthought. Everybody in this case that was part of the biological family was like discarded. The standards that are held for you are completely different. Mason fell out of a chair and you're held to this impossible standard of proving what happened based on his x-rays. So impossible, in fact, that uh, in the show cause hearing, what was it that the child protection physician said? I think they said something like, if you had lied, they probably wouldn't have called child protective services. Correct. So this is what he said. And I don't I don't know how much of the truth it is or it isn't. But um, Mason had his large fracture in hematoma. He had the subdural hematoma. And then he had a small fracture on the outside of his occipital bone about the length of a pinky nail. And I did not have quote unquote history of that small fracture on the back. And essentially they said that that fracture occurred at some other point in his life up to this and the the cause of that was unknown but had i lied and told him oh that fracture occurred last week when i don't know my husband was turning the corner and he hit his head on the door frame if i had said something like that and had a history of that fracture that they said was did not occur at the time of accident, that they would not have involved CPS. That's what he said on the stand. However, Dr. Matt, her report that they disregarded, stated that that fracture had associated swelling, meaning it happened at the same time. The size of the fracture and the location of the fracture means it was on the outside of his occipital bone, easier to fracture there as opposed to the middle of the skull. She went into like extreme detail on this very small, very, very small fracture 
structure, indicating that it happened at the same time of the incident. The child abuse pediatrician said, oh, if I had just lied about it and gave him a false reason as to why it happened, that we wouldn't be in this situation. Which is just ridiculous. The department is holding you to the standard to be able to explain what you didn't even know would show up in an x-ray. All the while, during the course of the investigation, they do not let the foster parents know that your daughter has a milk allergy. So then she has a reaction. They put her in an inappropriate bed. She falls out of it and she ends up with a black eye. They don't check on the children for more than three weeks. And at the same time, they say that the kids are in imminent danger. There's this like double standard. It's almost like a God complex. Like they can do no wrong, but everything that you do is wrong. The other thing that we found to be misuse of power was the altering of the files. We don't know what we don't know, but we do know the files were altered. If they were altered on the day where he was going to have to answer for certain things. I think that we can use our brains and recognize that that was very likely an abuse of power. There were text messages once subpoenaed for our um, sanctions hearing between the caseworker and supervisor about certain documents. They didn't indicate that things were being changed. They were talking about the things that needed to change over text message and then were changed in the files. Acts of bad faith against the agency. Why? Why do we even give them the ability to go in and change it? Like, why can't they go in and add an amendment under it if they needed to it? And given time, you know? Yeah. If you guys hadn't fought back, it just would have resulted in children that would have had so much trauma. What about all the people that literally can't afford it? We couldn't afford it. And we're very fortunate to have the parents we have. But what about all the families that can't? How many kids are out there just stuck away from their parents simply because they couldn't fight? There's just no oversight, no checks and balances. It almost feels like they try to hide things or not be forthcoming with things. All this, like you said, almost like some entrapment type thing. Why aren't we sitting down and just together trying to figure out what actually happened or this and the other like um we were told that we couldn't record and my husband's like nope i know my right what about all the parents who don't and stop recording thank god he did because if you didn't have that audio i think things would have gone really differently it seems like if anybody in the room who worked for the department really cared about the best interests of your kid they would have said the alleged perpetrator is mom so you know what let's get mom out of the house And let's keep dad in the home because at least they'll have one stable, secure base. Their environment would have changed. Yeah. They may have recognized I'm missing or Mason. definitely. And the nursing and stuff like that may have happened. But again, they were so fortunate to be protected by their ages that as much as it sucked, we would have powered through it, right? It is a sacrifice I would have made for them, right? I would have packed up and gone to my in-laws or my aunt and uncles or two places they couldn't go. One of the things that I just can't get over that just scream of the abuse of power is when your case manager was removing the kids and one of you asked why you weren't invited to the hearing. And his answer was something along the lines of, I knew you would be combative. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be able to get in there and get out and not have anybody question what he was doing or provide any evidence to the contrary. That in and of itself, and the fact that he felt secure enough to mm-hmm. say that, like, did he know he was being recorded? Oh, yes. We were very upfront. We didn't have to be, but we were. We put it right out in the middle. He knew he was being recorded and he's told you the reason he didn't bring you to court is because he knew you would be combative. Unbelievable. He's got to feel untouchable. 
I have a little piece of the, I guess, whatever here. And it says, my attorney asked, why didn't you tell the parents you were going to court to seek emergency custody of their children? Because I was intimidated. He said, mental intimidation. I can't tell you how many times people said, I don't know how your husband was so calm. And he was, I mean, he held it together. People all the time, oh, if that was my kids. Da, 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 da. And I'm like, no, Dylan knew if he acted that way, it would make it a thousand times worse, which is what kept him in control. He was far, far more in control than I was. I was the one who was yelling at him. We're just not the people to be like pooping and hollering and, and aggressive and assertive and belligerent and all of that. So it was pretty tame. But even then, he never raised his voice at LeVar. He never like showed any sort of aggression. He was the calm, cool, collected one. Many combative people lose their kids and they're invited to court. I wonder if you guys weren't invited to court because you had things like medical records and other things. Like you had a case. Probably, but remember at the end of the day, they were trying to not have to go to their program director for an extension. So they didn't want to get in trouble at work for not following policy. And so the whole reason they even did any of that was to try to hide the fact that they didn't follow CPS policy appropriately. And what if they had followed CPS policy inappropriately and what would that have been? A slap on the wrist? And what world is taking ripping somebody's family apart just cause for doing your job wrong? Slightly wrong. At that point, they had only done slightly wrong, right? They had only not followed up with us and not proceeded the case along. Like, really? So they would have gotten, again, a slap on the wrist, but instead they tried to commit more crimes to cover it up. Like, what? One was a policy broken. The other one is crime. You could go back in time and do things differently from when you arrived at the hospital. What would you do differently? Texas Children's Hospital. And I'm sure every other hospital says no recording devices. That's because they don't want you to have them. It is your right in the state of Texas. It is a one party consent state. Well, as many, many, many other states. So at least look up what your state laws are in, in regarding to consent. You can record everything. And you should. And I'm not saying that you should because you think everything's going to go wrong and be bad. For me, I was in a state of trauma and I had 15 doctors tell me their name and different things and different appointments and different tests and labs and all this stuff. I, could, I couldn't ingest that. Just because I needed to have a hear back when I was in a calmer place, record it. The neurosurgeon that was on Mason's case, he truly loves his job and truly loves children. And I would trust him to drill a hole in his brain again and again. There is so much going on and you're not going to remember any of that. So record. They say no recording because that's hospital policy. Now you can't leave a recording device and walk away and use that as evidence. You have to be the consenting party. You know, you have to know your, your rights, your legal rights, but record. I wish I wasn't so naive and I started recording from the beginning, not because I ever thought that is going to come down, but all the medical things, you need that information. It's important. What advice do you have for someone else walking through a similar situation? Get an attorney. If you have an attorney, it gets placed in court. So it removes the control from CPS and puts it into a third party. And CPS can't run the narrative. They can't. If they don't have the evidence they need to move forward, your attorney will shut it down. That's a um, great way to put that. What do you wish they talked about more on do no harm? I know that they tried to keep it CPS focused. I wish there were a portion that were medically focused. I feel like the unsung villain 
in this narrative is the child abuse pediatrics team. You know, they're so covered legally that how do you prove a misdiagnosis on something that isn't able to even confirm 100% or not, you know? And if they didn't misdiagnose Mason, then would any of this have happened, you know? If they were held liable for their misdiagnosis, Mason's medical records still indicate if I went back to Texas Children that he was abused. That's their diagnosis. I can't change it. Even with our court findings and everything like that, according to Texas Children's Hospital, he has a diagnosis of abuse. It will always be there. And I can't I can't change that. And nobody can. You can't sanction the doctors. Let's talk about something more fun. Tell us about your new venture. Oh, I feel like because our story, it sounds like we're so anti-CPS and we're so anti-foster care. That's not the case at all. We just believe that there can be better CPS and better foster care. It is not our purpose right now to be a foster parent. Does that mean ever? No. That just means I have three small kids at home. Today, it's not it. However, we want to be able to give back to and make better a community that was not so kind to my kids. I personally know foster homes that are full of love, that are full of grace, that are full of compassion, that are just truly, truly enriching these little kids' lives. They are incredible. And to be a foster parent, there's a lot of burden on those parents, specifically when it comes to getting your homes ready for welcoming a child and all that goes into that. And one of those things that people don't even recognize is the fact that you have to have a fire marshal, at least in Texas, a state fire marshal assessment of your home. It has to be appropriate for fire safety measures. And I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty basic, you know, but somebody has to come in, make sure your fire extinguishers work and you have the appropriate amount for your home and all your smoke detectors work and you have the appropriate amount and they're located in appropriate places. And you know, that overall your home is safe, like they would at Taco Bell or McDonald's or a number of other basic buildings. So of course, where they're going to place a kid should also meet those requirements. Well, that comes out of financial burden to these foster families. And so my husband, that's what he does for a living. That was our business was fire protection services. And with his licenses, he can certify these homes. You don't have to have a fire marshal come in. You can have somebody with the appropriate licenses come and certify your home. This is not a home study. They still do that as well. This is in addition to, and then you also have have to have your fire extinguishers inspected and serviced annually. And we were talking to a friend of mine and I think they said it was like $65 or something, a fire extinguisher every year to get it retagged for their foster home to have somebody come out. And I'm like, that is absurd. These people who are so graciously and selflessly opening up these homes for these kiddos to stay have to have financial burden on top of everything else, you know? And so my husband and I, we just have a heart for foster homes and we want to be able to make it easier and better and cheaper to certify your home so that we can let these kids in because that should not be of concern to you. And so we have a little side hustle called Bright Firebox and you kind of help you walk through it, get everything you need inspected in the state of Texas. We're licensed in Texas and Louisiana. Unfortunately, not everywhere, but at least your listeners in Texas and foster families, our friends of foster families in Texas can check us out and hopefully allow us to help you take a little bit of the burden off a little bit. You have to raise these kids, you know, you have to love them and provide for them and feed them in the summertime. That means like 98,000 snacks a day. That was that's so awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. How can people find you? Brightfirebox.com. Uh, just check us out. I'm not here to make millions or anything like that. That's not that's why I do it. I just want to be able to, to give back and do for others as so many others have done for me. So um, yeah, we need good foster families. We need more foster families. I just keep saying my kids are perfectly healthy and they're sleeping in their beds tonight. What a blessing. I'm very thankful that y'all spent your evening with me and wanted to hear about our story.
Well, I'm th- we're thankful that you just spent four hours with us. I mean, most people would have dipped by now. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Make sure you subscribe and follow us on social. We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.